Coming up today, the UK locks down, wedding planners pivot to crisis comms, and our take on Disney+. Plus. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today remotely from our respective homes are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when the UK went into lockdown to try to further prevent the spread of coronavirus and stop the NHS from becoming overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. Boris Johnson announced the new measures on Monday night, which mean all non-essential shops are shut and people are to remain inside except for necessities and one form of exercise a day. And it was also the week when the UK Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announced the government is turning a London exhibition centre into a temporary hospital to manage COVID-19 patients. So the XL Centre in Canning Town will temporarily house the NHS Nightingale Hospital, which may eventually provide up to 4,000 beds, and that's expected to uh, be set up from next week. This is also the week when a 5.4 magnitude earthquake hit the Croatian capital of Zagreb, causing widespread damage to buildings and the evacuation of hospitals. The event caused confusion at a time when people were being urged to remain in their homes. And finally, this was the week when challenger bank Revolut launched in the US. The fintech has more than 10 million customers in Europe and is valued at more than $5 billion. But cracking the US market won't be easy. Lots of... uh negative news there unfortunately obviously uh, pretty much the climate at the moment anyone got a uh, more light-hearted fact perhaps matt burgess um so this week in my sort of like self um uh, working from home situation i decided that uh, i needed to clean the windows because basically i was sat staring out of this big balcony window door all day and it was disgusting um so it sort of provoked me to find out um who the world's fastest we- window cleaner is um and this apparently according to guinness world records as a guy called terry burrows who in 2009 cleaned three 45 inch by 45 inch office windows in 10 seconds all three of them, so sort of three seconds each. He had a big squeegee on a, on a pole, but um, yeah, it was less, less than 10 seconds, which I thought was fairly impressive and better than my efforts, at least. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that compare to, to your talent? I was stood on a chair, um, sort of balancing on one leg, trying to reach over and not fall off the balcony. Um, and it took me about 45 minutes, so I've got some way to go. <laughs> if anyone's got window cleaning tips for Matt Burgess, podcast at wire.co.uk. Uh, Amit, tell us your fact. Uh, yeah, so while uh, while rooting through the spice cupboard this week, I found out that nutmeg is a hallucin- has a hallucinogenic compound in it called myristicin, or myristicin probably. Uh, so apparently with 15 grams of ground nutmeg, you can get a high that includes hallucinations, dizziness and memory impairment of your trip, which uh, is one thing to do if you're self-isolating and you can't go to the supermarket. Uh, editor's note here we we do not recommend that you actually do that but um thank you for the uh the tip anyway amit <laughs> uh, matt reynolds you have been looking into coronavirus for wired for um well since the beginning of the outbreak now um and you've learned lots of interesting things about this tell us the latest right yeah so i learned that germany and italy are europe's two oldest countries on average so in germany the average age is 46 the median age is 46 and in italy it's 46.3 years so very similar but if you look at the average age of a coronavirus patient in italy that is 63 whereas in germany the average age of a coronavirus patient is patient is just 46 and that is one reason we think why germany has a really really low death rate at the moment compared with other countries in europe uh, especially italy italy where things seem much worse so that's very interesting because it does seem that Germany's death rate from COVID-19 is low compared to the number of cases it reports. But you're suggesting that age and sort of demographics is perhaps the reason for that. Yeah, exactly. So so 
it's worth saying that these statistics will, statistics will change over time and this is only one factor. But what we do know is that a lot of the German cases were brought back from young people going on skiing trips. So it kind of circulated among younger pe- uh, populations very quickly. Whereas Italy, some of the earliest and hardest hit communities were much older. So you're going to see much higher um, fatality rates from coronavirus patients there. So actually, it's this really interesting thing that actually the kind of demographics of who's being infected with coronavirus really, really changes your uh, death rate, at least in the early stages of an outbreak this this may well flatten out um you know a month down the line mm-hmm. very interesting uh, well i learned um something interesting about the tokyo olympics so the tokyo 2020 olympics have obviously been delayed to 2021 um but they're still going to be called the 2020 olympics why is this well one reason is to help out all of the vendors who have stocked up on 2020 merch and now wouldn't be able to sell it if the name changed to match the year because no one's going to buy a 2020 Olympics t-shirt if they're going to the 2021 games um, but you know although the Olympics in the past have been cancelled and have been boycotted this is actually the first time that they will be postponed and the first time that they'll end up being held in an odd numbered year. That is pretty um, surprising. I hadn't thought about the merch aspect of it, but I guess it I guess it makes sense. People would have already made uh, loads of stuff for the Olympics, T-shirts, hats, all those things, and now we don't have a game. So, yeah. Yeah, and the organisers say, you know, they hope that by continuing to call it 2020, maybe it, it brings a little bit of hope at a time when people perhaps need it um, and still kind of a positive connotation to, to the year, I guess. So as uh, on to our first main story, and as you've probably gathered so far from the podcast, there's little anyone can talk about aside from the coronavirus crisis that is gripping the world. Uh, Matt Reynolds, tell us the latest. The big news this week is the UK going into lockdown. Well, I would love to tell you the latest, but I might flip that to Matt Burgess, who knows more about this story. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're, Sorry, we're I got my, mi- my, my mats mixed up. It's easily done. Matt Burgess, you're going to tell us about the lockdown. I am. You, you're not the first to get us mixed up and definitely not the last. It's fine. Um, so at the beginning of this week, after a weekend of people going out and enjoying the sunshine here in the UK uh, and seemingly gathering in groups in parks and socialising as they were sort of exercising and going about sort of daily business, um, the UK government decided that it is time to sort of step up the measures to stop the spread of the coronavirus. So on Monday, March 23rd, almost uh, coming up towards a week ago now, really, uh, Boris Johnson got rid of his daily press conferences that he's been holding at the end of each day and and decided to do a national broadcast, uh, taking five minutes, uh, roughly roughly that, and maybe a little bit longer, but um, just overall broadcasting to the country, saying that uh, the nation is to go into lockdown this week, immediately, in fact. So well, what exactly did he say? What, what does that mean, lockdown? So for the UK, this uh, there are four specific reasons uh, that were outlined why people can actually leave the house. Um, so Boris Johnson said that what people can only leave or should only leave were when they need to go shop for food and other basic necessities to exercise once a day. That was a very specific uh, stipulation put on that. Um, to go out for medical needs, uh, inc- including providing care for others and to travel from to and from work only where it's absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. Uh, As well as this, there was announced uh, sort of a change for businesses as well. So now a large number of non-essential businesses must close. The government says that uh, shops and uh, retailers such as uh, hair and beauty shops, including nail salons, tattoo parlours, massage parlours, auction houses, car showrooms, campsites, caravan parks, libraries, community centres, cinemas, other similar venues, museums, casinos, betting shops, spas, gyms, and generally places where lots of people go not to buy sort of like the necessities to keep on sort of uh, living a pretty stable life are all all should be closed immediately um weddings are off funerals are allowed uh, but with uh, sort of like the the parameters of social distancing guidelines in place and things that can stay open uh, are supermarkets other food shops banks news agents corner shops off licenses dry cleaners uh, hardware shops petrol stations and the like essentially so key uh, places that are providing services to many people 
So obviously the advice has been uh, for a while now to, to kind of stay at home as much as possible. But at the weekend, we saw a lot of people kind of in parks and things like that. So does this kind of new lockdown come with any sort of enforcement? What happens if you don't, you know, what happens if I go to a nail salon or a tattoo parlour? What what consequences will there be? Well, hopefully they will be closed, damn it. Um, but um, generally businesses are sort of being regulated uh, or going to be regulated through sort of like local councils. Um, so some of the sort of government's um, uh, legislative measures that it's been putting in place over the last couple of weeks which should have gone through uh, the Houses of Parliament, the Houses of Lords and actually become law by the time sort of this podcast is out at the very very least. Um, say that environmental officers and trading standards officers uh, from local councils can uh, check that the rules are followed and they will have powers to uh, serve prohibition notices to businesses that are staying open when they shouldn't and they can also offer unlimited uh, fines um, if they feel these are necessary for businesses for individuals so if it's people going out in groups of more than two uh, which is one of the sort of things that is said is not allowed now um, there can be the same sort of fines um, the government has said that fines are going to start at 30 pounds for an instance but they will sort of ramp it up if they see people um, doing things on a repeated basis or just sort of like if people aren't being put off by a 30 pound fine essentially um, so I mean, it's pretty unlikely that the government can enforce things such as uh, if you're only going out for exercise or for a walk once a day. I think it would be very difficult for uh, the government to sort of like actually practically do that. But we've already seen sort of uh, instances of uh, some local police forces shutting down barbecues that were being held. And in London, we've seen um, Victoria Park, one of the sort of big, big main parks, uh, close down uh, to people when there's too many people being inside it. And so this varies a little bit country to country, right? Because in France, for example, um, I think that citizens basically have to have a note that says, I'm going out today, uh, it's my one bit of exercise a day, and police will kind of check that. And if you don't have a note, then you'll kind of get a fine. Whereas obviously in the UK, we're being asked, you know, have you been out before? You know, maybe you should kind of move on. It seems a little bit uh, softer, the approach. So how much does, um, how does the UK compare to different countries in terms of their, their enforcement around this? Yeah, so I think that one of the interesting points from when Boris Johnson made this announcement is he was very careful not to use the word lockdown in his entire sort of speech uh, announcing this to begin with. He didn't mention that word at all. And I can only assume that's because he doesn't want to be seen to be trying to be too heavy handed on this. We've seen reports from like political uh, journalists saying that the UK has been trying to take a little bit of a, a lighter stance on enforcement because uh, they don't want to see to be acting too sort of dystopian or or anything like that um, and as a result sort of as you alluded to there Matt the UK is not the sort of strictest in terms of lockdown obviously countries are at very different stages in their own outbreaks and it, I think it's probably worth saying that the UK uh, it, it may come to a stage when uh, more limits are put in place we might see limits put in place around transport and uh, sort of like stronger ways of enforcing this but yeah in other countries people aren't uh, in some cases haven't been allowed out to do exercise I think in Spain they've been very sort of locked down on that side of things Italy we've seen uh, again the same sort of uh, approach of like you have to sort of be justifying and have a note saying why you're, why you're going out um, but at the moment sort of the UK is still fairly um, the measures are obviously the right thing to put in place but there are sort of examples where there are stronger measures around the world that we've seen how are you guys all finding the new lockdown? We've been living under it now for almost a week. Um, how has it changed your routines? There hasn't been too much change for me at this stage. Like we were already working from home and sort of uh, socially distancing before this uh, sort of lockdown came in place. So I think for, for myself and it hasn't made too much difference. I mean, I was only doing one run a day anyway. Um, so I haven't been had too much of a impact on that front is that one 100 kilometer run <laughs> yeah the government didn't say how far you could run or how long you could run for no i've been very sensible <laughs> matt yeah yeah i would say similar actually i think that um because we obviously got we were you know lucky enough to be able to work from home already and we already had this advice it felt like you know we, we all knew to stay inside as much as possible i would say one interesting thing is this this advice around um going to the shops and you know try and consolidate all your shopping maybe into one go like one big trip a week rather than popping into the shops all the time so now if i go out for a run rather than thinking oh i'll pop 
buy and pick up like that thing that I need I'm thinking well I might as well do all my shopping in one go because obviously you're kind of you know the fewer trips you can kind of take out to especially more crowded areas like a supermarket um yeah the better so it's, it's certainly kind of changed that aspect I'm, I'm you know uh, I'm kind of trying to consolidate any movements that I kind of I would make but otherwise I think because we're working from home already it's it's not been too much of an adjustment I'm just really making the most of my one trip out a day um, if anything, I'm actually doing more exercise than I was before, so uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, no, but yeah, it, so I was I was self isolating for a week, kind of leading up to the lockdown because um, we had some symptoms. So yesterday was the first day I'd been out for for ages and ages and ages, and it was kind of surreal. Like the last time I'd been out, the shops were busy and everyone was kind of you know just going about their business. And then going out yesterday it was like going out into a completely different world, almost just really surreal. Yeah, it does seem, you know, for everyone who was following the advice already, working from home where possible and, you know, practicing social distancing, I guess the new restrictions didn't actually bring many, um, many new things into play. But perhaps those people who weren't following that advice quite as closely will have noticed a bigger, bigger effect. So, yeah, everyone listening, you know, if you are in a, a place that's affected by the outbreak, do follow those rules. They are really important. Yeah, and I think one other thing to add is we're also seeing sort of like the big supermarkets and businesses that were already open and have been staying open making sort of changes as well. So some of the supermarkets are introducing uh, markings on the floor where you can only stand showing you sort of like the distance you have to stand away from the people queuing in front of you and sort of checkout screens to introduce sort of like um, less interaction between yourselves and people who are sort of... uh, uh, serving at the checkouts and generally sort of like those sort of social changes are happening as well let us know how you're experiencing the outbreak in your country um, are there restrictions on movement are you under lockdown how does it differ from what we're describing the usual address podcast at wired.co.uk for all of your questions feedback and queries Now, Matt Reynolds this time, Uh, a lot of the conversation at the moment, certainly in the UK around coronavirus is about testing. And it seems that that is crucial for moving on to the next stage of dealing with this pandemic. Tell us what's been going on there. That's right, Vicky. So as you say, a lot of the focus right now, if you've been paying any attention to this story, you would have heard a lot around coronavirus testing. So as of March 20th, so these statistics are a little bit out of date, South Korea was kind of leading the world in terms of testing. So it performed around 320,000 tests, while the UK was on around 65,000. Uh, now the government has said that it wants to ramp up testing to 200, sorry, 25,000 stats, uh, stats, 25,000 tests every day, although we're still a pretty long way off of that but those tests that everyone have been talking about they only tell us one thing which is uh, do you have coronavirus at a given point in time it's no good giving it to someone that has had coronavirus in the past because it would just come back negative now what we really want to know is whether someone has already had coronavirus in the past and that's kind of the next level of testing that we're thinking about that's the thing that the government really wants to focus on now can we have a test that says all of these people have already had coronavirus so this is the antibody test, right? How does that work? Yeah, exactly. So this is, this is kind of an antibody test and it's, it's a blood test, really. So just to kind of contrast it for the tests that we've got um, at the moment, and these are the tests that you've all been hearing about, um, the tests that test for the presence of the virus, they use something called a, a polymerase chain reaction, which is kind of your standard uh, virus test. And all it does is you take a swab uh, from your nose, usually, um, and then it, it kind of mashes up this virus, uh, duplicates it, and it's like, oh, yeah, there's a virus in there, or there's not a virus in there, right? So the virus is there, you've probably got the disease. But what tests for past infections are doing is something quite different. So this is something called serology. And what they do is they're looking for the presence of antibodies in your bloodstream. Now, as, as you know, we'll probably know from your kind of, um, you know, your school biology, when you're exposed to certain viruses, your body kind of has an immune response. It recognises it and it produces all these, uh, these kind of um, molecules called antibodies that next time you're exposed to that virus, they will, they will, these antibodies have this kind of memory and they'll be able to target that virus and get on top of it really quickly. So what this serological testing is what it's called will be able to tell us is how many people have been exposed to coronavirus weeks or maybe even months ago without perhaps even knowing at the time. So this is kind of indicative of the fact that we've kind of moved into a new phase of the outbreak and we're beyond trying to trace individuals that have the disease right now and might be spreading it and we're moving more towards kind of trying to figure out who's had it but why is the government so keen to go down this route now 
Yeah, so I think, like you say, Amit, like, really the kind of interesting thing is, is, I mean, it's great to know how many people have the disease right now, but in reality, if those people need medical care, they will probably present themselves to you, right? Because they will be calling hospitals, they will be, you know, they will be in need, right? It's, it's quite easy to see who has a severe case of disease. Now, what these blood tests will enable us to do is to find out the proportion of people that are already immune to the disease. So, you remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, um, a mess up from the UK government, but everyone was talking about herd immunity, and you know maybe we'll reach, reach this level of herd immunity where so many people have already had the virus, so actually uh, it's very unlikely to spread um, you know uh, any further. Well, if we have representative samples from antibody tests, we might have some sense of whether we're anywhere near reaching herd immunity in a population. So it's going to be really important over the coming months, but also it could help inform uh, government policy perhaps over the you know the next month or even a bit longer because it will help the government know when to relax social distancing measures uh, social distancing distancing measures and social isolation now right now if we relax social distancing while everyone is still vulnerable to the disease then there's a really good chance that you're just going to see another spike in cases right because as soon as everyone starts mixing together you have the same situation as you had before because you've got no inbuilt immunity so what we really want to do is work out how much resistance is building up in the population for the immediate future probably thinking the next couple of weeks within the next month, it'd be really helpful for NHS workers because they kind of need to know if they've had the infection and are therefore immune. Because at the moment, lots of NHS workers are, say, they're really worried about coming home. Some of them are isolating themselves away from their family because perhaps their, you know, their wives or their husbands have, have jobs that mean they have to go out, maybe they work in construction, and they don't want to pick up the infection. But if they know they're immune, they know that actually they can kind of return to some normality in their life and they, they're able to go and treat patients, especially in a high-risk setting. And it might help you say, oh, actually, we can put our immune doctors to deal with COVID-19 patients, whereas people that maybe don't have the immunity, maybe they can move somewhere else in the hospital. So it'd be really important in the short term for, um, for people in healthcare. Yeah, and one of the sort of like key things about the spread of this coronavirus and also uh, the relation to immunity is because it is new and we don't know that much about it. Are there some other things that we need to know uh, about immunity for this to actually work? Yeah, I mean, that's really the kind of question. So knowing this stuff would be absolutely great and it is going to be really necessary. But the problem is, is because it's a brand new uh, coronavirus, we don't know a whole bunch about our immune response. Now, what we do know is that for some other human coronaviruses, so there are a couple of human coronaviruses that cause symptoms very close to the common cold, um, they tend to induce immunity that only lasts for a couple of months or so. Now, you also might have seen uh, some reports of reinfection of coronavirus. So there's been some kind of um, uh, anecdotal cases, I think, in South Korea and in Japan. Uh, So there is the possibility that people might be able to be reinfected with the virus. But really, we just don't know. Now, early signs from animal tests suggest that the the virus does provoke uh, immune response, as you'd expect. So basically, a team from the uh, Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences uh, in Beijing exposed four monkeys to the virus. And then, you know, a week later, they were ill. And so they definitely got the virus. Um, And then two weeks later, two more of those monkeys were re-exposed to the virus, but they were able to fight it off because they had this immune response. So we're pretty sure that you do get some kind of immune response uh, to COVID-19. But we're not entirely sure how long it lasts, or perhaps if it kind of covers everyone. So we definitely need to know more around this immune response. We just don't know a whole bunch because it's such a new disease. So normally with something like this, you know, you'd want to take your time. Scientists would want to do loads of studies, um, you know, get a good handle on how the virus works, what happens with immunity and that kind of thing. But in this situation, the clock is ticking. You know, the longer you leave it, the more people are going to be adversely affected. So what what happens next? Yeah, so the government is certainly kind of quite excited about these tests and they're taking it quite seriously. So the government has already uh, ordered 3.5 million of these antibody tests. And just um, it's quite likely these are going to be kind of finger prick tests. There's some suggestion that you might be able to do them at home and they give quite simple and very quick responses, but they probably just need a a drop of blood. They don't they probably don't need um, an actual blood sample, although maybe in different settings, there might be different types of tests used. But although the government has ordered these 3.5 million tests, it still says it needs to work out whether these tests 
tests are reliable enough, uh, reliable enough to be used. Now, what you really don't want is a test that gives lots of false positives. So you don't want a test that says, um, tells people, oh, you've definitely got those antibodies. You've had the disease. You can go out and go to work and you're fine. Um, because obviously what you're doing is you're putting someone that's still vulnerable to the disease uh, back into the population. Now, a false negative might be a little bit less important if you say, oh, no, you don't have the antibodies. You're probably just going to stay inside like you were going to anyway. So what the government will be looking at is it will be looking at this false positive rate and this false negative rate and saying, OK, what is the kind of you know, balance? How, how reliable is this test? Because the problem is all tests are you know, wrong to some degree. But really what you want to work out is how, uh, you know, is it wrong within a kind of all right uh, portion and obviously what it'll be doing also in you know in the meantime is, is thinking about well who needs these tests immediately um so there'll be a big focus on prior- prioritizing health workers because there's some people that are going to probably benefit from this before the rest of the population does do we know if like does having antibodies mean you can't carry the virus do is that something that we know yet or can can someone who's had the virus and recovered from it still be a carrier yeah that's a good question my i think my sense is is that because usually you're infectious when you're kind of symptomatic or just around being symptomatic that I, I think that usually um you don't you, you're unlikely to be infectious if you um you know if you're immune to the disease i mean obviously someone can still transmit a virus right you can still have it on your hands and pass it on you're still a kind of vector of transmission in that way but i would imagine that immune people are, are going to be less able to uh, spread it of course that's not true uh, across all viruses or all disease some people that don't suffer from a disease can still kind of sp- spread a disease so i think that again there's probably um you know loads more work needed on that but one point at which this probably will be useful in the near future hopefully is that even a small number of these tests should be pretty helpful for understanding how much of the population has already been exposed to the disease so I don't know, maybe you've kind of come across this anecdotally, but a lot of people have said, well, I had a kind of fever and a cough a month ago. I probably had it. Maybe I had it. Um, and also, we also know that lots of people can get coronavirus, perhaps 50% of people, we're not sure exactly proportion. Uh, we know lots of people can get it without showing any symptoms at all. So what we don't know is how many people have had this disease. Now, if you can have a kind of a randomly sampled section um, of the population and say, oh, we kind of looked at this and we realised actually 20% of people had it and we had no idea, you know, we'd never tested these people, that would give us an idea of how much uh, immunity there was in the population, you know, in other words, how much, you know, how many more people were vulnerable to the virus. And so it'd, it'd really help us inform these kind of um, government responses and kind of ramp them down. And really, you don't need to test everyone to work that out. You just need to say, here's a representative sample of the population, could be anywhere in the world, really. Um, and let's kind of apply that and we can start doing our studies. So people are working on these studies right now. And um, there's a team in Oxford and Cambridge and Kent that are looking at this. And that's going to be really, really important because, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ideas out there. Some people are suggesting maybe half the population has got it. Some people say it's way less than that, even though it's probably much more than the case numbers suggest. But until we kind of do these studies, these antibody tests, we don't really know how many of us have already had the virus. Yeah, that's really interesting. This question of, you know, how many people could have it asymptomatically has been a big theme because um, I guess, as you say, you know, that would mean that actually those people maybe don't have to worry so much about the virus and it could have implications for, uh, you know, lockdowns and behaviour and and how much movement has to be restricted. And as you say as well, I've got so many people I know who have said, oh, you know, I had some cold-like features a while ago. Maybe I've already had it. And because the symptoms of coronavirus are so similar to symptoms of many other common diseases, I guess it's just impossible to know without having having those antibody tests available. Yeah, exactly. And these are, these are you know, these are the kind of the questions. So because like you said, we do know that say from, um, we have data from repatriation flights, so people that came back from Wuhan and into the UK, everyone was tested and we saw, oh hey, kind of 40 to 50% of these people, they actually had the virus, but they were showing no symptoms at all. Of course, if that is true for everyone in the population, there could be many more people that have the virus that, that we didn't realise. Also, younger people tend to be more asymptomatic so maybe it's much more widely spread but like you said Vicky until we actually do these tests we don't know because if you look at the case numbers it seems really quite low as a proportion of the population but um, there's no way of knowing until we kind of get these studies but hopefully uh, we should start to get see a picture of this in the next couple of weeks and that's going to be super important because that's going to be the kind of data that starts to inform the government responses and finally we'll be able to kind of feel our way through this a little bit and maybe start seeing a, a bit of a way out really. Excellent. Well, we will keep updating 
all of our listeners on the latest progress in testing um, and what's happening, especially in the UK with these antibody tests. Let us know if you've got any feedback on that one. Podcast at wired.co.uk. And we've been following the impact of the coronavirus crisis on lots of different industries and communities, including online communities. So I've been looking at how some of them have been dealing with the sudden change. Uh, And one sector that's been affected particularly by the crisis is the wedding industry. So due to health advice and government lockdowns, many people are having to postpone or cancel their weddings. And this has completely changed the job of online moderators at Reddit's major wedding planning community, r slash wedding planning. It's usually a place where people go to share wedding dress pictures or ask etiquette questions. But in the space of just a couple of weeks, obviously all anyone could talk about was coronavirus. So as, as you say, normally people kind of share tips and, and share stories about their wedding. So how have the posts kind of changed over the last month or so? So interestingly, the, the posts have kind of tracked the spread of the virus. So the forum's very US dominated. Uh, and the first queries were concerns around wedding dresses and bridesmaid dresses that were being made in China and whether these would be delayed, because obviously that's where the outbreak first hit. And I think at that point, you know, a lot of the Western world saw this very much as a problem in China and perhaps hadn't realized the full um, implications of of how this virus could spread. So then there were a few questions from international brides and grooms or people who were expecting international guests, obviously international travel being one of the first things that started to be restricted. Next came a wave of people who'd been planning to go on honeymoon in Italy, which is one of the first European countries to be hit and still one of the worst affected places. And then very quickly, the floodgates opened as the virus spread across Europe and the US and the subreddit was inundated with anxious couples weighing up whether they needed to cancel their weddings or or make any other changes. It's kind of a microcosm, I guess, of, you know, the anxiety that lots of people are feeling just embodied in this one online forum yeah and it seems that like obviously sort of people planning for weddings and under a lot of sort of uh social press pressure and stress and sort of like it's one of these things that it is very sort of difficult to handle at the best of times let alone sort of during a pandemic or anything like that and these people sort of uh moderating um the subreddit and sort of those in it how did they how do they really come to deal with sort of the change in scenarios Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. One couple's wedding may not be a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, public health is more important. But, you know, these are people who spent often over a year planning for this event, probably sunk more money into it than they have for for anything else. It's supposed to be, you know, the happiest day of their lives. And so you can see how this becomes a bit of an emotional touch point for people um, handling the crisis in general. And this is the thing that they end up focusing on. And it is a very kind of, you know, high emotion, high stress thing. Uh, So I spoke to the moderators of the forum who said they put a lot of thought into their approach. They'd really discussed how to deal with it. Obviously, Reddit leaves, um, you know, how individual subreddits, um, what rules they they put on their communities and how they enforce them largely up to the individual moderators. So they had to decide what to do with it. And and they they were kind of weighing up. They wanted to keep the subreddit useful for all 125,000 subscribers. So weighing up the needs of those whose weddings were affected and really wanted to discuss what they could do if they're having a wedding in the next months. Uh, But also with those who are maybe planning further out and are trying to go there, you know, to get away from the news headlines and to think about something positive. And of course, they wanted to do the best thing for public health. But it was very hard to judge what to do there because there's been so little official information, you know, in terms of what people should and shouldn't do. We've spoken about this before, the kind of bungled communication in the UK and the US in terms of um, official rules on, on what's okay and what's not, which which left many people having to make those decisions themselves on, you know, is it okay to go ahead with my wedding? What if I've got 10 people? What if I've got 20 people? What if I've got 50 people? And so on. Um, so the moderators decided that first they'd just keep the posts up 
Um, and, you know, they, they were thinking about restricting them to one mega thread, but they thought this could perhaps create a bit of a negative echo chamber and maybe result in more panic as people kind of stress each other out. But eventually, you know, the posts just became too many. So they did settle on creating one COVID-19 mega thread split into months so people could easily find each other who were in the same boat and kind of try and use the community as a support structure. So that's how the moderators responded. What about the kind of everyday users of this subreddit? Because, you know, I've not planned a wedding, but I'm told that, you know, they were talking about like more than a year of someone's life. You know, so much money, so much time and investment. I mean, is the atmosphere just kind of a bit gloomy there now? Yeah, it is. I mean, I should say, you know, I'm, <laughs> I know about the story because I, I use the forum myself. Um, and, you know, luckily my wedding's quite a way off, so it, I haven't been personally affected by it. But there was a really marked shift in tone. You know, usually this is such a positive place. And then suddenly it's become this kind of hotbed of anxiety and panic um, and, you know, everyone being rather distraught. And it's, it's just a heart wrenching thing for people to deal with, I guess. And one one really hot topic is naturally, you know, whether people should cancel or not. The advice now in most places it, who, that are affected is pretty clear. You shouldn't be holding social gatherings, including weddings. Uh, but it wasn't always so obvious. So there was a moment where there was a lot of sort of um, people just confused about what they were supposed to be doing and that was adding to the anxiety um, and you know it, it's difficult for uh, the community because even apparently kind gestures aren't always taken well so some people tried to kind of go on a bit of a positive campaign to, to lighten the mood by sharing pictures of their wedding dresses sometimes you know the dresses that they'd planned to wear but couldn't because their wedding was cancelled but this is actually surprisingly controversial on the forum even in normal times um, so some users are really fed up of all the dress pictures and accuse those posters of just trying to reap karma, which is sort of the Reddit's point system. So, you know, even, um, you know, gestures that you might think would be taken positively can cause a little bit of, of infighting and upset. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's really kind of a shame to see people struggling. One of the, one of the things I think is really interesting about this story is that it kind of shows how in the coronavirus crisis, these kind of these volunteer, kind of like normal people have kind of been pitched into this role as like the adjudicators of what's acceptable behaviour and what's not, you know, and 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 this is probably being mirrored in you know on, on websites and in communities all over the place as as kind of uh, people have to make these decisions and some people don't agree with them. So what's it been like for the people at the kind of front line, you know, dealing with the deluge of coronavirus-related posts? How, how have they coped with it? Yeah, so the moderators I spoke to, um, you know, they all take their role, even though it's completely voluntary, they take their role as moderators on, on the subreddit really seriously. And they, re they clearly really care about this community and keeping it a place of support and positivity and trying to help people help people out um but you know they they signed up to moderate a wedding planning community and not <laughs> anything about coronavirus um so they're really just doing you know doing their best using the resources that they have um and they say you know it's been really difficult for for them and they they can't please everyone so one message that they shared with me that they'd received um from someone whose post they'd removed um that was telling someone to cancel their wedding. Um, and it said, blood is going to be on your hands if you continue to censor any dissent towards brides proudly refusing to cancel and in doing so risking countless lives. And this really affected them because obviously, you know, they're just normal people. And the reason they deleted the, the post was because the commenter had broken other rules. They'd used profane language, which has never been allowed in the forum. So I think they feel like they're very much stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're never going to be able to um, please everyone. And they're having to suddenly put so much more work into this voluntary role while also having to deal with all the things that the rest of us are. Um, so one told me um, it's hard because not only do we have a duty to moderate a community in turmoil, but also we have to leave, lead our real lives. In a time of such uncertainty, panic and fear, it's hard for me to prioritise this additional volunteer role because that has to come last. I have to worry first about how I'm going to keep my family safe and healthy. What will happen to our jobs? Will we have enough food to eat and enough money to survive this? Moderating wedding planning is important and something I've given years of my life to. It's just hard in the midst of a pandemic to log into Reddit and see a million reported posts, angry mob mails and posts by users in crisis mode. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's just one example of how this is affecting regular people um, who are just trying to get about their daily lives, trying to support each other using the Internet as well, which has, you know, always been a great 
great place for people to go and seek help for different issues. Um, but yeah, it kind of made me really upset that quote. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's like, like you say, like this is going to be going on all over the internet and, and and in real life as well. People are really kind of struggling to kind of combine coronavirus with their day to day responsibilities and and things like that. So it's a really interesting uh, look at that. Yeah. Let us know your own stories of how you've been dealing with the situation and especially if you're a member of any online communities that have been affected by this. Moving on to our final story of this week, which may come as some welcome relief to people who are suddenly finding themselves with more time on their hands at home. Amit, you've been looking into Disney Plus, which just launched in the UK. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It launched on Tuesday, which was the exact same day the UK went into lockdown. So very good timing. Um, The... Hotly anticipated streaming service gives subscribers access to Disney's entire back catalogue of animated films, plus Star Wars and Marvel content and more than 600 episodes of The Simpsons, which I was very excited about. And it's yet another entry into the kind of streaming wars that we've seen with Netflix, Now TV, Amazon Prime, etc. So we've been uh, publishing a bunch of guides to the best things to watch uh, and stuff like that on wired.co.uk but we've also been analyzing what it could mean for the entertainment industry more widely uh, with this kind of massive entertainment company coming into the streaming world for the first time yeah so how does um how does this sort of like compare to to netflix is is, it, is this going to be something that actually does uh, act as that sort of like netflix killer in the industry altogether my sense is that probably probably not like although disney plus has done fantastically well it's got almost 30 million subscribers in the united states um and it's likely to do pretty well in the uk as well given the amount of uh marketing that's gone into it and the fact that we can't really go outside at the moment um i don't think netflix is going to be too worried about disney plus right now like the archive content they've got on the platform is really great but what it's missing at the moment is those like original shows that really get people kind of talking you know things like stranger things or uh uh, Breaking Bad, that kind of stuff. Like, um, it's got it's got the the kind of it's got the Mandalorian, which is the Star Wars spinoff, which was really popular, and which brought us uh, Baby Yoda, which you'll have seen everywhere. But for now, that's kind of it in terms of new original kind of content with mass appeal um, for adults. Although there is a lot of kids stuff, including a new live action remake of Lady and the Tramp. Um, there is a bunch of more stuff kind of coming down the line, like a lot of TV shows that are tied into the. Marvel Universe, so uh, Loki has got a show, there's a WandaVision show and a, cu- a couple of others, but um, production on some of those have been delayed because of the coronavirus. We, we've got this kind of big gap until we see any more kind of original, here's why you must sign up right now kind of content coming to the platform. So I don't think Netflix is going to be too worried just yet. Um, the other weakness that Disney's got when it comes to kind of competing with the other platforms is that it's very, very focused on family-friendly content. So that means that a lot of the content that Disney owns, which theoretically could be on Disney Plus, like films from 20th Century Fox's like back catalogue, they're not on the not on the platform. So, to give you an example, The Simpsons is available. All the episodes of The Simpsons are on there, but more kind of adult shows like Family Guy, uh, American Dad aren't on there. Um, in the United States, Disney's put that content onto Hulu, which is another streaming platform that it owns a stake in. But it's unclear what's going to happen in the UK. Um, and it's also kind of had to. Uh, it's a kind of it's a kind of similar discussion to the one we had about Apple recently, in that uh, Disney's trying to trying to toe the line between being like a family friendly entertainment company, but also then trying to make like good, gripping, edgy TV for adults. And those things don't necessarily aren't necessarily compatible. So it's had to pull the plug on a number of productions which were deemed not to be family friendly enough, um, including a sequel to Lizzie McGuire, which follows her life as a thirty year old. Um, so yeah, Disney's kind of struggling with this, you know, what it means to be a family-friendly platform at a time when uh, a lot of money is going into like making great TV for you know adults that's edgy and dark and 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 you know R-rated, I guess. So if Disney is shifting all of this more grown-up content onto Hulu, um, maybe Disney Plus is not so much a Netflix competitor as a competitor against you know CBBS and CITV if CITV is still a thing because haven't watched it for you know many years twenty years but you know is it is it is it kind of analog TV channels linear TV channels that should be more worried about about Disney Plus? Yeah, quite possibly. So we did a piece recently looking at what the launch of a big platform like Disney Plus might mean for kind of good old fashioned kids TV, this kind of stuff that we grew up on, like, you know, the Queen's Nose, etc. 
play days and that kind of stuff um which is already kind of struggling to compete with youtube and like online streaming platforms like um so uh, an ofcom report found that cbbc which is the bbc's children's uh channel viewing times for children there declined from 11 minutes on average in 2010 a day to just five minutes a day in 2018 so they've already seen this deep drop um and that's a problem because one of the things that also comes out of Ofcom's reports is that 40% of kids don't feel that they've been reflected in TV that's, that's being produced, you know, kids' TV that's being produced. Particularly, that's true particularly of uh, kids from the North and the Midlands, from the regions. Um, and that could become a lot worse if their diet becomes basically exclusively kind of YouTube and uh, content from this like massive American, uh, you know, producer of entertainment content. We could see that, you know, a, a loss of the kind of regional like country specific content and a kind of a homogenization of the content that children are consuming which would be a real shame um so yeah I, I think that like if you know if you've got kids i think the the decision about whether to get disney plus or not probably comes a bit easier but it would be a shame if everyone in the world was watching growing up on the kind of same you know seven or eight shows um but it's also clear that that kids are a clear part of disney strategy because uh, it's been argued that it's not really like Disney doesn't really care whether or not it beats Netflix. It's more about kind of selling merchandise as effectively as possible. And that's kind of why they're, they're plugging Disney plus. So that merchandising question might explain baby Yoda. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Matt Burgess wrote a really good piece about, uh, this for the, for the website for us recently, kind of looking at, at how Disney plus is basically being used to to expand Disney's merchandising reach. So it gives it kind of total power over its own image for the very first time, which is something it didn't really have when it was kind of forced to sell its films to cinemas or to, you know, TV channels to kind of distribute them. Now it's got control over which shows gets put, gets put, get pushed when, which films get, you know, a big push around which particular dates. Um, and that means it can, it can much more effectively tap into like the massive merchandising market. So in 2015, it was estimated that Star Wars had made about $12 billion from revenue since the first film was released in 1977 and 4 billion from box office. There's a huge market to tap into here. Yeah, I think that it's it's really interesting that Disney is one of the companies that is really good at sort of owning its own intellectual property and sort of making the most of it. You've only you've only got to look at like uh, sort of all the Disney worlds that spl- sprung up so long ago now um, to sort of see how strong and powerful it is in terms of yeah really sort of understanding the value of its characters and the people that it sort of creates and puts into shows. So if you look at um, if you look at Disney Plus, the biggest hit so far has been Baby Yoda. Like to begin with, uh, there wasn't a huge amount of merchandise around this but uh, the character has since had uh, loads of stuff produced by Disney which is essentially just building off this image uh, using it as sort of like a a meme to go across the whole of the internet and sort of really understand what that is and then on the back of that yeah Disney produces lunch boxes and figurines and and everything else that is sort of all baby Yoda Yoda franchises and then is able just to sort of like make money from ways um, that um, at the moment Netflix has not really been able to get onto that sort of like uh, merchandise train see i can confirm that because when i went to school i had 101 dalmatians lunchbox but i've never had any netflix themed uh, lunch equipment so but, but the question i have so we uh, none of us have children um i'm not a disney plus subscriber are any of you three getting on board with it uh, i signed up actually yeah on day one and what, yeah, what was and your reasoning me. uh I, I, I kind of thought I felt like I ought to just you know as as the culture uh, culture correspondent I thought I ought to keep an eye on it but yeah to be honest actually having a look through it right now there isn't a lot of stuff that kind of grabbed me as like oh I really want to sit down and watch this right away even the Mandalorian's kind of been out in the states for six months um what I am personally excited about is the new kind of Marvel properties that they've got kind of coming further down the line um but and also, also, as I said, kind of like having access to all the Simpsons episodes was is like amazing. Although, again, it's like actually it's one of those things like Friends where it's like I'll watch it if it's on. But actually, am I going to sit there and watch, you know, specifically sit down and be like, oh, I really want to watch the Simpsons episode that I've seen for, you know, 30 times, or whatever. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I subscribe, but if I was recommending it to other people, I'd say maybe wait a bit and see if they release any more content that kind of takes your fancy before you make the plunge. Yeah, I'm I'm maybe of the slightly sort of like different disposition where I'd say that 
um i think that what's on there is actually like the depth of the stuff is there's a lot of quality on there um if you're looking for something that i don't know i'd spend a long time browsing through netflix or now tv and there's like going through 40 50 60 different titles being like no i don't really want to watch this then end up settling on something that's old um whereas i feel like if i go to disney plus and this is only in the first week and yeah we're in lockdown so probably been watching it more than anything else but um yeah i feel like i can go there and i will find something that yeah i might have seen before but there is like there's stuff from all of pixar's back catalog and all the classic disney films and all the sort of uh things that i just sort of like had forgotten a bit about as well like mighty ducks and stuff like that it's like okay i could watch that if i know i want to watch something easy that isn't brand new but yeah there isn't the new stuff on there i mean yeah and that's the thing right yeah the stuff on there is really really good don't get me wrong it's just not new uh which is kind of fine right because yeah you don't always need to watch things that have just come out but what's really interesting is that uh, it's given disney the ability to treat all those properties as if they're new when it comes to merchandising so when i went to the press event a few weeks ago they had like a whole room that had like all the merchandise that they were kind of launching around the release of disney plus and it was like there was stuff around the mandalorian t-shirts and little pin badges and baby yoda plushies but there was also a bunch of new merchandise for films that are 10 or 20 or 30 years old there was new merchandise that they released around up and around wally and around all these pixar movies and it's so interesting that this is going to kind of give them the platform to push that stuff basically non-stop and not have to wait for like a, a release window of a narrow you know, a film coming out in one summer or whatever. Let us know if you've got Disney Plus. Has the lockdown forced your hand? Have you found some good stuff on there? What are you enjoying? What are you hoping will be on there in the future? We'd love to hear your views. And we've got quite a bit of feedback from our last podcast last week, which was our first remotely recorded podcast. And Brian says the quality of the podcast was excellent. Thank you, Brian. We're glad it worked. It was a bit of an experiment. He says, maybe you should keep up the same system when you all return. Either that or buy an extra microphone. Point taken, Brian. We'll see what we can do. Uh, Sasha's also written in. She said that when she listened to Natasha last week talk about the terrible effects of working on the sofa, she was scared straight. So uh, like like Matt Reynolds is doing right now, she started using an ironing board. Uh, She said she posted a picture of her work from home setup with the ironing board on the company internet. And it's helped her get noticed in her new job. So thank you to Natasha from Sasha for the ergonomic tips. Cool. Uh, David also wrote in to say, or to answer the question of what will what will people be doing uh, during lockdown? Uh, and David said, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, uh, he's one of the people that is working to keep uh, the sort of shop, the big supermarket sort of going. Uh, he said that he's a night manager at Tesco and, uh, and it's been sort of from his perspective of working in the stores. It's very an unprecedented time where uh, we've seen or he's seen people that have been sort of arguing and fighting over toilet rolls and milk and pasta. Uh, like there's no tomorrow um and that sort of uh yeah david said that yeah there's a majority of people are fine but as we've seen there has been a, a few small people that have sort of like taken stockpiling on and things like that um, and that's genuinely sort of like how he has been spending his time and is going to be over the next few months and just yeah keeping the keeping the country running i guess and a final bit of feedback from Ivana, uh, also on the on the subject of working from home. So she says, I also find myself in a situation where I have to work from home. However, I do lack some appropriate equipment. So I had to improvise and ended up with using Wired magazines as a laptop stand. So we're really glad that once you've got all the good stuff out of reading it, well, there's also a, a life beyond the word. So, you know, double up as a laptop stand. So great that we've got a little bit of a working from home uh, utility as well thanks for writing in i am actually also currently using a stack of wired magazines as a laptop stand so you know if you haven't got a subscription to the print magazine yet there you go you can get get your money's worth and use it twice wants to read wants to make your laptop stand one issue taller thanks everyone for listening this week we'll be back again remotely next week um we've loved speaking into your ears <laughs> let us know any feedback that you've got and how you're handling things on your end uh, and we'll we'll be here again next week goodbye for this week bye, bye. goodbye <laughs>